Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we are continuing the lesson from last week called Fellow Travelers. And um, I, I am, I, on your notes, I went ahead and included most of last week's message just in case you missed it, if you were not here last week or did not uh, able to listen in on the live stream, I encourage you at some point to go back and listen uh, because that will, it'll make a lot more sense to you that way. We began last week by reading, um, <coughs> I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4 and... Uh, quite a lengthy passage, a very rich passage. We're not going to read the whole passage because the bulk of it had to do with where we were last week. I do want to read a couple of verses. Um, in verse 16, uh, you have it there in your notes. We're just going to go down to verse 16. And we're going to read these verses to tie this week and last week together. At my first defense... No one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Now, that's where we're going to focus today. Out of those 18 verses, we're going to look at those two. But I do need to... To, to say this, you've got the ideas that we pondered and we spent time talking about we need each other. Friends are important. Fellow travelers are important. Because remember what we're looking for is fullness. Um, I came into the sanctuary one day, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, and somebody was just looking at the, the sign that we have up there, fullness. The cup that was barely filled and increasing fullness. And um, they were just looking like they were lost. And I said, can I help you with anything? And they said, oh, no, I was just wondering which cup I am. Which cup I am. And that's a good question to ask. We're on a journey. We talked about what we are, those great Christian words. And then we said we're on a journey. And part of the journey is realizing that we're fellow travelers. We've got to find our place in commuting and we settle accounts along the way. We spent most of our time last week talking about four travelers that Paul cited. Now, he actually talked about seven or eight uh, in the passage. Uh, Paul had nothing to lose. He was about to lose his life. And it showed us a very tender part of Paul where he said, all of this stuff, all of my struggles, it's about to pass but I remember my fellow travelers, and he gave us some real clues on how to deal with them. He said there was Demas. He said, Timothy, you need to know there are going to be some that travel with you for years, 
you think they're there and then they'll leave you. They'll leave you high and dry. Now he wasn't talking as a pastor. He was talking about friends. And that's why it applies to all of us. There will be some who will desert you even after being side by side with you for a long time. He said, I remember Alexander. He said, I, he did me much harm. I want you to be careful because he will cause you harm as well. And Paul was telling young Timothy, and I told you last week, we need to understand there are people out there. I know it's hard for us to imagine. I mean, it, it really is hard for us to imagine. We know it's possible, but when the reality occurs, it just doesn't want to set in. There are some who will intentionally hurt you. There are people that want you dead. I don't mean like you're on somebody's hit list. But they curse you. They, they don't want you to be in their lives. They don't want you to be in the public forum. Um, there are Alexanders that if they have their way, they will hurt you. Um, there are Marks. Praise God for Marks. This is probably the biggest group. There are some who fail you in time of great need. But if you'll just give it time, grace, and forgiveness, the relationship can be restored. And I think one of the great things God is doing in churches and in so many of our lives right now is people that hurt us that we've written off. God's convicting us and he's telling us not to write them off. We might have been like Paul where you're willing to split up a great friendship because of what Mark did. I mean, I've known people that they lose multiple friends because they're so hurt over what one person did. Paul lost his ministry with Silas because, and with Barnabas rather, because Barnabas wanted to give Mark a second chance after defecting from the journey. And Paul said no. But now with time, we don't know what happened. We know it was years later, but now we've got Paul saying, bring Mark with you. He is helpful for me for the ministry. So there are people that we thought left us and were gone forever but God's bringing them back, friends into your life. And can I tell you what I think a big thing God is doing is? God's bringing our kids back. God's bringing our children back. God's bringing parents back. God's bringing relatives back. Uh, don't, don't give up on marks in your life because God can be bringing them back. And then we celebrated, wow, we celebrated Luke's. There will be some who by the grace of God never leave your side. What I want to do today is pick up part two, and this is what I want, want us to talk about. There are seven steps toward recovery. You want to be full? You want to be that glass on the end? One of the things you're going to have to deal with when you think of all the one another passages in the New Testament uh, and, and so much of the New Testament is written in the context of unity, of community, of serving together. God told Israel in the Old Testament, he said, when you want come together, one of you shall chase a hundred, five of you shall chase a thousand. He said, and the more you get, the greater the armies you can defeat. So it was a great thing. And so it's important for us, I believe, if we're going to be filled if we're going to be successful in the journey, I believe we need to learn how to travel in community. But I'm not talking about pie in the sky. You know, we, you know, we, we don't even sing it anymore. We used to come together and we'd sing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. 
you know, and we'd sing it, and, we'd, and then at the end, you know, you'd put your arms around somebody on the last verse, and you'd sway back and forth. We changed it at Southeastern. Um, we, we, we would sing it, I'm so glad I'm a part of the assemblies of God. You know, join heirs with TF, washed in the blood. You know, that was our superintendent. But we don't even sing those songs anymore. Um, you know, Bill Gaither used to sing, I love the thrill that I feel when I get together with God's wonderful people. Something happened. We don't know if God's got any wonderful people anymore in so many settings. But I want to tell you, there is something powerful that occurs when we learn to walk together in unity and harmony. When you get a chance, we won't have time to do it today, but uh, I did it in a sermon one time or I gave you the list of the New Testament passages where it just talks about one another, how we're connected to one another. I encourage you to look that up. But what I want to do right now is give you seven practical suggestions that will help you restore lost relationships, that will help you forgive transgressions that you've been struggling with. Now I've got to give you the, the disclaimer, you don't have to be friends with everybody. You don't have to get restored. I mean, some restoration is just not possible because of the heart of somebody in it. That's why the scripture says, as much as lies within you, live at peace with all men. There are some people that won't let you live at peace with them. There's some people that won't let you get past uh, an offense. But what you want to be sure is be sure you've done everything you can do. And then it's on them. Here's number one. We need to realize if we're going to be at peace with our brothers and sisters, the first thing we need to do is realize we are responsible for our own choices. We are responsible for our choices. And I don't mean by that if you've got a tough relationship, it's your fault. No, no, no. I'm not saying you have to take blame, but I'm saying you need to take responsibility. You need to understand that some relationships are just toxic. You need to understand that when you see that number on caller ID, you're about to have something occur that's going to ruin your whole day. This person is toxic. This person is not about unity. This person, uh, they, may, they may give it in the form of a prayer request, but they are about division. They're about disloyalty. And they are the kind of people that will manipulate you. You will find yourself, as Paul said, tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And loved ones, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing unspiritual with making a judgment that says this relationship is helpful or this relationship is hurtful. Now, we ought to always be nice. We ought to always be cordial. Because I want to tell you, if you, if you take responsible for pleasing, responsibility for pleasing everybody, you're going to end up in a hopeless and fruitless situation because you can't please everyone. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying. You say, well, I'm just not going to worry about pleasing people. Well, you better you just got to know who to please. That's why Peter said, husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Nobody tells me how to live. Yes, he did. He said, in other words, the Chitty Revised Standard, when he said, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, it's translated this way. 
Find out what makes your wife tick. And then find out what makes your wife ticked. That's good biblical advice. Dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Loved ones, I want to tell you, a wise man will find out how to make his wife happy. And I'm not just talking about sexuality. I'm talking about everything from taking out the garbage to picking up your socks to whatever it is. Find out what makes her happy and then do everything you can to make her happy. And I guarantee you, if you can do that, everything else will be better too. Okay, I don't have to take blame, but I, but I do have to take responsibility. And there are people that are worth pleasing. But there are some people that you cannot please. And that doesn't mean you have the right to mistreat them or write them off. But I know as a pastor, I know through the years, uh, there's so many pastoral organizations. And I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about things outside the church. There are so many things that I thought, well, I need to be a part of this. I need to be a part of that. I need to be on this committee. I need to be on that committee. And I found out the hard way. There are some committees. There are some things that I'll never please the people that want me to serve there. And it's just a waste of time. And I don't disregard them. I don't write them off and say Ichabod over your meetings. I just realize I'm not going to put my energy and time there because it's not a good fit. You need, that's what we're talking about. We need to be responsible for our choices. I'm not talking about being hard hearted, but I'm talking about being responsible. You can't do everything. You can't be what everybody wants you to do. So you need to set priorities in your life, serving the Lord, serving your spouse, serving your kids. And you need to decide what am I going to put time into and what am I not going to put time into? Can I just say this as I move on? Because I can tell you're smart, you've got it. Um, but that's why some of you have so many hurt relationships You've entered relationships that were unwinnable to begin with, and they're so toxic, but you just didn't know how to, to manage your relationships. And if you do know how to manage relationships, sometimes it's so mean-spirited. So, you know, it reminds me of the, of the fellow walking around in a bar. He was about five foot two, weighed about 102 pounds. He's going around the bar, and he walks up to big guys. He grabs them by the shoulder and says, what's your name? And they'll give him his name. He'll write it down. He did that all over the bar. And he's just so hateful and so angry. He walked up to one guy, huge guy. And he said, Hey bud, what's your name? And the guy told him his name and he wrote it down. And the guy said, why are you writing my name down? And he said, well, I'm just making a list of everybody I can whip. And the big guy kind of chuckled. He said, well, I just don't think you can whip me. And the guy got right in his face, close enough to spit in his face. He said, well, then I'll just take your name off the list. <laughs> uh, guys, some people don't even know they're being shown mercy. Some people are just hard to deal with, but we are responsible for our choices. That's number one. Here's number two. God has determined that we are to live in community. 
Um, I know that we are flooded, and our church has seen scores of people leave from time to time because they got hurt with our church or another church. And their attitude is, well, I just, I don't need the church. I can serve the Lord by myself. And I'm not talking about somebody that's shut in or is unable to get to church. That's not what I'm talking about. Many, many folks that are part of our congregation live stream, they don't live close enough to get here. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. But loved ones, somebody who loves you needs to tell you, you can't serve the Lord on your own as well as you can in community. It's not designed to work that way. You telling me I can't go to heaven if I don't come to church? No, I'm just telling you when you get there, you'll regret it. I'm telling you, you need community because there are some things that happen in community that don't happen when you're alone. Now, you may say, well, I believe in a home church. I don't have arguments with that. Some people are members of house churches. Some members meet you know, in different settings. I'm not going to get into that argument. The only thing I'm trying to say is if there's a seed of rebellion in you that says, I don't leave, I don't need community. That's a dangerous place to be. I don't mean you're going to hell. I just mean you're cheating yourself from all kinds because there's some things that happen when we come together that don't happen when we stay apart. So we, we need to understand that if we're going to live in community, our goal is to redeem and restore. I want to tell you it is really a difficult thing. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to love our neighbor as ourself. And it's, it's difficult. And some go halfway. They say, well, I'm commanded to love you, but I don't like you. That, that's not a biblical distinction. I can love you, but not like you. I know what's behind that, and I understand that, but I mean to really love your neighbor as yourself, that takes the work of the Holy Spirit. There was a prophetic picture of Messiah, and someone said to Messiah, what are these marks between your shoulders, depending on which translation you read? What are these wounds on your back? And the answer from Messiah is, these are wounds I received in the house of my friends. Back in my day, uh, when I was much younger, I remember a man named Hubert Humphrey. You may not know who that was, but he was vice president of the United States under President Lyndon Johnson. And uh, Humphrey was from Minnesota and was, I think, mayor of Minneapolis, I think, then became a senator um, uh, from Minnesota ran for president a couple of times. 1968, he ran against um, um, Richard Nixon. And it was, it was a tough time. That was a tough year. There were, there, 1968 is one of the toughest years that America's had in the past century. Um, Robert Kennedy was killed. Martin Luther King was killed. There were riots. There were school. There was racial unrest, civic unrest. We were trying to, to get our arms around the idea of civil rights, and the country was just a, a powder keg ready to explode. Uh, uh, not everybody was willing to solve the problems that we had. And Nixon and Humphrey ran against each other. And it was a particularly venomous campaign. Now, it wasn't like it is today. In those days, most of the nastiness was behind the scenes. But it was, it was there nonetheless. And Nixon and Humphrey were seen as mortal enemies. Well, you know the story. Nixon won. Then he won re-election and resigned with Watergate. 
So he was a president in shame. But Hubert Humphrey, about seven or eight years after that, was diagnosed with cancer, and it was terminal, uh, inoperable. And Hubert Humphrey, who was a fighter, he was, he was um, not an easy guy to get along with, whether he was right or wrong. He was not an easy guy to get along with, and he had a particular hatred for Nixon. And Humphrey, when he realized he was dying, began to do something. Some people understood the first part. They didn't understand the second part. He began to invite his closest friends to come in and he wanted to tell them things, talk with them about things before he died. It was expected for him to invite his friends. But after he went through his friends, he started going through his enemies list. He had an enemies list, not as developed as Richard Nixon's, but he had his own enemies list. And Nixon was number one on his list. And people wondered why did he invite Nixon to come in during a moment that's so vulnerable, you're dying. And why would you invite your greatest enemy? And the mystery was not answered, but when Hubert Humphrey's funeral occurred in 1978, it was exacerbated because Humphrey's wife Muriel came in on the arm of Richard Nixon. And they sat together and someone, it was, that was the commentators went to that, you know, they, instead of celebrating Humphrey the way they should have, they just ran to, what is she doing holding on to his enemy's arm, you know? And um, to make a long story short, several things occurred. I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version. But Humphrey had called Nixon in not to try to argue politics, but his wife said this, it was a time when Hubert said to Mr. Nixon, I know you and I both have been on opposite sides of the aisle for however many years it was. And we have said things very unkind about each other. And I've not invited you in here to tell me that you're sorry. I've not invited you in here for me to try to convince you of my view. He said, I am about to die. And I want you to know that things that were once so important to me are not important to me anymore. And I want to be sure there's nothing between me and my God. There's nothing between me and any human being. And I wanted to say that I appreciate you. And I'm sorry that I haven't always acted that way. Well, that didn't come out till after he was dead in its, its fullness. I don't know if Hubert Humphrey was a Christian. I think he was a church member. and I, I just don't know. But I know this. He did more than most Christians are willing to do. It might have taken him coming to his deathbed. But our goal is to redeem and restore. To redeem and restore. When... When uh, General Sherman, that ransacked the South, you know, the, the march to Savannah, the march to the sea, when he died, the man that was the most obvious mourner was General Joseph E. Johnston, who was his opponent 
It was the war effectively ended with two surrenders, Lee's in Appomattox and Johnston to Sherman. And General Sherman gave such generous terms to General Johnston that this is what happened. General Johnston came to the funeral and in a pouring down rain near icy conditions, he took off his hat to honor his opponent. And he ended up getting sick and died from a cold because of his exposure. And someone asked him, why would you do that? Why would you take your hat off for your greatest enemy? He said, because every day I get closer to meeting God, I realize that we can't hold these things in our heart. And this is what he said. And knowing General Sherman, he would have done the same thing for me. Loved ones, I'm not trying to thrill you with some Civil War story. Most folks aren't interested in those anymore unless you're old like me. But I do want to tell you something. The world that may or may not be connected to the Lord sometimes has greater sense about what's important than the church does. So our goal is to redeem. That's why uh, Paul said, to the Galatians, he says, you that are spiritual, if you find a brother overtaken in a fault, restore him in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, or you could be tempted to do the same thing. And it's interesting, the, the word restore is the word that was used for, for setting a broken bone. And it was set with the idea of being as strong or even stronger than it was before. That's why in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, in fact, this was a second um, definition of spirituality. The first was in a chapter earlier. Um, the second was this one. Galatians 6 was the third one. 1 Corinthians 14 was the fourth one. But he says this, you that are spiritual, understand this, have nothing to do with envy, strife, and division. Doesn't say anything about being right or wrong doesn't say anything about being a watchman. It says have nothing to do with envy, strife, and division because your goal is to redeem and restore and such a one is, is unspiritual. I, I want to recommend a book to you and it's called A Tale of Three Kings. A Tale of Three Kings is written by Gene Edwards and it's the story of three kings. I, I bet you would have figured that out. Um, a Tale of Three Kings, story about three kings. It's the story of Saul, the story of David, and the story of Absalom. And it shows how different the hearts of these three kings were and what made David a man after God's own heart. David, David had perhaps more offense than Saul and Absalom put together as far as the number of offenses, but he was the one after God's own heart. And I, I won't ruin the book for you, but David in the book comes to a point where you realize what the whole thing is written about. David is at a point in his life, he has been persecuted by Saul. Uh, Saul tries to kill him. His own son Absalom has betrayed him. And this is what David says. When I was young, I was not an Absalom. And in my old age, I will not be a Saul. God brings Saul's and Absalom's into your life and a wise man or woman makes the decision that is what I will not be. 
That is what I will not be. So we are responsible for our own choices. We are to be brought into community to redeem and restore. Number three, here's number three, evaluate and improve your communication skills. Oh, pastor, there's nothing wrong with my communication skills. It's that woman I married. Or it's my neighbor. Well, I want to encourage you. I forget the author of the book. I think it was Gary Chapman. I'm pretty sure that's who it was. The Five Love Languages. Um, I wish that that book had been written 1,200 years ago. When I was a young man, it wasn't around. But the idea is that there are five basic love languages, ways that people communicate love and the way people receive love. And the premise of the book is not that one's right and one's wrong. We're all different. The premise of the book is that if you're going to have a maximum relationship with somebody, you need to learn what their language is. Because what you want to hear may not, or see or receive may not be what they want to hear, see, or receive. What we usually do, if we don't know the language, I, I remember being in Portugal trying to get a hamburger. Uh, they told me, the missionary told me before it was all over, or after it was over, that, uh, he, he said, I'm not sure, but I think you ordered an, a, a, a barbecued cowboy. I think that's what you ordered. Um, but I didn't know any Portuguese. I, I mean, I'm fluent in Spanish. I can, I can ask how much and where's the bathroom. I mean, I... But I knew no Portuguese. But you know what I did? I did what we always do when we're speaking the wrong language. How much is a Big Mac? I got louder as though that would make my indecipherable words understandable. You see, when you read the five love languages, you understand that you don't resort to volume. You, you have to speak another language. And we have to discover how some people want to be talked to and how they communicate to you. And it's not an easy thing. It's like a four-layered thing. This is how I want to be talked to. This is how I talk. This is how you want to be talked to. This is how you talk. And um, I, 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 I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe we need to learn something from General MacArthur from World War II fame. General MacArthur said a great general does not give orders that can be understood. He said a good general will, but he said a great general gives orders that cannot be misunderstood. He understood the goal of orders was to be not just understood, but to not be misunderstood. I tell you, Ramona um, was in first service. She heard me say it and I, I survived. So I'm going to go ahead and say it again. There, one of the most devastating things ever said to me was by my wife. I mean, it, it eviscerated me. Yeah, it was years ago. It wasn't this week or anything. It was years ago. And uh, I couldn't believe she said it. It was so hurtful. I looked at her. I, I couldn't even answer. I said, how? I, I can't believe you said this. I don't even know how to answer this. And she left the room. 
So for a few days, I carried this around. I don't know if our marriage will really survive this. I don't want to live with a woman that feels this way, but when did she start feeling this way? And, and um, it was no big deal. Uh, you know, I, just, I thought, well, you know, I, I'll shake it off. When I finally said, we need to talk, I said, I'm troubled. I told her how troubled I was. She says, you've been worrying about this? I said, yeah. She said, I don't even remember saying it. When did I say it? I said, no, it was no big deal. It was April 12th at 9.02 a.m. <laughs> Love was, I, I was in tears because I thought a marriage can't survive this. I really felt that way. And she said, what did I say? And I told her what she said. And she said, I never said that. And I said, well, it's no big deal. Let me check my journal where I record significant things. <laughs> I said, you did say it, and this is what you said. She said, oh, what were we talking about? And I told her, she said, oh, I said those words, but I was talking about this, not this. And then she starts crying, and then she turns on me. How? The years we've spent together, how could you think I would ever say anything like that? Oh, I don't know, maybe because you said it? <laughs> I said, you said these words. I said, I know you did. And she said, honey, what did I say before that? What was your question before that? What was the thing that brought about the whole conversation? She said, I said those words, but you applied a meaning to my words that I never would have thought of in a million years. I would never say that to you. Then I'm in trouble. Why would you accuse me of saying something like that? And then when she told me what she, the context, I thought, well, of course. Of course, that makes perfect sense. That's, she expressed it perfectly. And thankfully, I, I was only in deep depression for a couple of days. But you know what I learned? I learned it's not only important to communicate, it's important to speak languages that are compatible. And we both learned there are ways you say things and there are ways you don't say things. It's not what you say, it's the way that you say it. So I, I, I want you to understand that not only do we need to be responsible for our choices and not only do we need to live a life that redeems and restores in community, but we need to evaluate and improve our communication skills. And um, you know, a few weeks ago, someone spoke a prophetic word to me I knew it was true. It wasn't an issue of I needed to evaluate the wording. You know, I knew it was true, but I just didn't know what to do with it. And it kept growing and kept growing and kept growing. And the word was very simple. It was during worship time, um, uh, the Lord said to this person, lay down your differences, they are in my way. Lay down your differences, they are in my way. And... Um, I, I began to question, you know, why is this not leaving me alone? I know where to lay down our differences. And I just, I just, those words 
were true, but they weren't powerful to me until they began to just bore their way into my heart. And after I took them to the Lord, the Lord showed me several things about how if we don't lay down our differences, if we don't lay down the, the way we hear, the way we interpret, the way we want things to be, we will block God's move every time. And what, what I thought was nothing ended up being something very significant. So we have to evaluate and improve our communication skills. Let me go to number four, be thankful. Be thankful. Um, for those that are on the journey, going back to the, the Luke's, only Luke is with me. Be thankful for those that have been on the journey of a lifetime with you. I was at a minister's retreat one time and um, there was a couple that was celebrating something like their 50th wedding anniversary or 60th. I don't remember what it was. A, a huge goal. And uh, folks were gathered around kind of teasing them, you know, you know, like any children in the forecast, you know, and things like that, just joking and going back and forth. And somebody said something that um, the, the wife said, oh, he's, he's still my knight in shining armor. And uh, after all these years and somebody else, another couple uh, that had been kind of reluctantly offering congratulations. She said, yeah, the problem with knights in their armor is that the closer you get, you see there's a lot of dents and scratches in their armor. And I thought, oh, oh somebody's not happy. Somebody's not happy. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to ease myself out of this conversation as gracefully as I can. And the lady that said, she's still, he's still my knight in shining armor, she said something that I thought was magnificent. She said, oh yeah, we've been together so long. I see a lot of dents. I see a lot of scratches. She said, but you know what I found out? Every dent and scratch in his armor, he got defending me and defending the children and doing what he thought was right, even if it ended up being not the wisest decision. She said, so I love every dent. I love every chink in the armor. I love every scratch because it tells me this is a man ready to fight for me. And then I got out of there because I knew this other couple needed counseling and I didn't want to miss the session. <laughs> so be thankful. You ever heard somebody say, well, my wife's gotten old. You know, she's 60. I'd like to trade her in for two thirties. And uh, guys... <laughs> I want to tell you, that's not even funny. Your wife may chuckle, but she doesn't think it's funny. And I need to tell you, you couldn't handle two thirties. You couldn't handle one thirty. And I just want to tell you, you need to be thankful. That's why the Bible says to rejoice with the wife of your youth. And you know what a lot of people think that means? That means, well, while she's young, I'll rejoice with her. But it goes on and says, let her embrace, satisfy you at all times. And uh, King James says, let her breast satisfy you at all times. That means her embrace. And you know what that wise man was saying? He was saying this. He said, the woman you married in your youth, let her embrace always be magnificent to you. Whether she's, whether she's 18 or 48 or 68 or whatever, always find something electric in that embrace with her. You know what he was basically saying? Be thankful that God has given you a partner to journey together. 
Boy, that's amazing. And I should have gotten a standing ovation for that, but we don't have time. We'll go on. Be thankful, okay? We are responsible for our choices. We need to redeem and restore in the community, evaluate and improve our communication skills. Be thankful. And here's number five. Are you ready? This is where it gets difficult. Start the process. Start doing it. And I put down three things that I think are just starting points for us. Number one, guys, learn to apologize. Now, you say, Pastor, you must, you must be waiting for apologies. You mentioned this last week. You must be waiting for somebody to apologize. Now, I, I think I've pretty well given up on that a long time ago. I did used to live for apologies because I thought even God didn't forgive unless somebody apologized. But uh, first of all, if that's true, uh, I don't have the moral ground of God. I don't have the right to say, I'm not going to forgive you until you apologize. Uh, I, I, I don't deserve that. I have not earned that. God, yes. And what I have learned is that I must forgive because I've been forgiven. I must forgive because I am an offender myself. But you know, if you want to say, well, an apology has got to come first, you're putting yourself there with God. So that's not it. But I, that's not why I've mentioned apologies for two weeks. I, I, I believe it because an apology is an immeasurable force for good. Sometimes all you need is a 10 second apology to break something that's building up in people. Because when we don't apologize, people don't think we care. Now, let me say this. You guys still with me? When you are given an apology, don't mistreat the apology. Oh, don't worry about it. You've been worried about it for five years. Don't, don't reject the gift that someone is bringing. You, you don't have to say, well, it's about time. But you can say, thank you. That means so much to me. I don't want there to be a misunderstanding between us. And you can tell when your apology is accepted or not. I'm sorry I did a, yep, it's not accepted. They're still mad. And whenever someone brings you an apology, learn the graciousness of saying thank you. Learn the graciousness of letting the apology do its work. Because can I tell you something? Most folks don't know how to apologize. Most folks don't know when to apologize. Most folks don't even know they need to apologize. That's why this thing about apologies is so difficult. Because when someone is taking offense at us, I know this is true. Most of the time, we don't even know they're offended with us. That's why you need to be sensitive. And that's why you need to choose your words carefully to begin with. Um, and let me, let, me, let me just, well, I'm meddling. Let me just go ahead. Roy, is it okay to meddle just a little bit more? Okay. Don't ruin a good apology with an excuse. I'm sorry I said that, but keep your butt. <laughs> not in this church, not in this state, decades ago. All right, I'm sorry I hit you. Man talking to his wife. But you just bring out the worst in me. You just make me so mad. 
And I thought, and I didn't just think it, I said it. I said, you do understand that's not an apology. I said, that makes me want to hit you. <laughs> I said, that's not an apology. It just says I hit you, but you're the cause of it. I said, you're crazy. You are crazy. And I don't know, I didn't understand it. They, they didn't come back for any more sessions. I don't know. <laughs> don't shift the blame. I'm sorry you feel that way. It's your fault. I'm sorry you took it that way. It's your fault. You say, well, what if it's not my fault? Take more than your share of the blame. You say, I didn't mean to hurt them then you don't, don't qualify it. Just say, I'm sorry that I hurt you. Might have been their fault. But you need to say, I'm sorry that I was the instrument in it. This is so good. Uh, and here's the third thing, or second thing. Learn to forgive. Learn to apologize. Learn to forgive. That's the, that's the toughest thing by far. And there are books that tell you how to do it. Total Forgiveness is an excellent book. But all books can lead you down a long list of things. I think the key is finding where you are and what works. But learn to forgive. And here's the third thing. Resist the tantalizing opportunities to wound. When I was growing up, there were three very famous comedians, Don Rickles, Rodney Dangerfield, and one less familiar to you, Red Skelton. Don Rickles was the critic. He was famous. Now, I think in real life he was actually a cordial and nice man once you got past it, but he was, he was the kind of guy that would just eviscerate you most talk shows and interviews didn't want to talk to Don Rickles because he was so often in character, he would just leave you shredded. He was the, the, on a good day, a kind moment, this would be Don Rickles. Interviewer says, well, good to see you, Don, you're looking great. And Don Rickles would say, yeah, so do you. I was just thinking you look like a Greek God. Oh, no, Buddha's not Greek, is he? You know, that was his kindness. Just a zinger. And people used to watch Don Rickles because he was such a critic. Then there was Rodney Dangerfield. He was the victim. You remember Rodney? I get no respect. I get no respect. And I'm, I'm not cursing when I say this. This is just typical Rodney Dangerfield. I get no respect. I called, dial a prayer. They told me to go to hell. That was his approach. No respect from anybody. And of course, it was the way he chose to portray his humor. Red Skelton was always my favorite. He came out of the days of the old vaudeville, then on radio, then in the movies. And he was an old man by the time the Red Skelton uh, show came on Tuesday nights. He was an old man. He would play um, not a critic or a victim, but he was known as the healer. 
Why was he known the healer, known as a healer? Because Red Skelton had the ability to make everyone laugh at him. You know, you know what it's like. Some, sometimes you feel like you were laughed at instead of being laughed, someone laughing with you, they're laughing at you. That's a, that's a tough thing for somebody that is of a sensitive nature. They don't like being laughed at. They, they want people to laugh with them. Red Skelton could make you laugh at him, and he would play San Fernando Red, Junior the Spoiled Little Kid, Clem Cadiddlehopper, Freddie the Freeloader, and more. His show was just so great. And at the end of the show, I mean, it was like a sacred moment. I don't know if he was a believer or not. I read one place that he was, but he wasn't an overt Christian so far as I know. But at the end of every show, um, no matter what went on in the show, folks, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for allowing me into your home for this past hour. And he'd end every show like this. And may God bless. And may God bless. Now, a lot of people invoke the name of God that have no relationship with God. But when somebody says it and really means it, 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 there was a reverence in our home. I know that's crazy watching primetime television and the sign off of a comedian bringing a reverence in your home. But you really felt that Red Skelton brought a blessing to you. You really did. Now the question I want to ask you is, which one are you? Are you Don Rickles, the critic? Are you Rodney Dangerfield, the victim? Or, or are you Red Skelton, the healer? Okay. Here's number six. If you aren't happy, don't try to poison those who are. This was Absalom's great sin. Things weren't perfect in Judah and Israel during David's reign. But they loved David and they believed if they could just get to the king, he might be able to set things right. If you're looking for a perfect environment, you will never find one. A perfect church, you'll never find one. A perfect spouse, you'll never find one. But in a place where hope was sometimes on its last leg, maybe the king will come through for me. Absalom's great sin was to poison hope. Oh, he'd make it where it sounded good. Oh, if I was king, this is what I would do. If I was in charge, it would be this way. But what the people didn't know, they thought they were getting hope through Absalom, but they weren't getting hope. Absalom was poisoning the only real hope they had. Okay, you look like you've had enough, but there is one more. We're responsible for our choices. We redeem and restore within the community. We evaluate and improve our communication skills. We learn to be thankful for those that have stayed with us. And we start the process of improving. We don't spread our poison. And here's number seven. This is the verse that I read for you earlier. The bottom line is this. If you're going to get your arms around this idea of traveling together, if you're going to get resolution over those that didn't stand by you, you have to do this. You have to understand that it is possible that you'll go through all of life and the Lukes won't come home. 
you need to understand that sometimes Alexanders win. You need to learn that sometimes Demas will never say, I'm sorry. You say, well, what about the Lukes? I'm finding out Lukes die. They just die. My brother used to say, I know something's wrong with me. And I said, why? He said, because whenever I get the newspaper from home, he said, I turn to the obituaries first to see which of my friends have died. And he, he's in heaven now, my brother is, but he went through this funk of everybody that's been my friends, they're dying. What's wrong with them? And I said, well, they're, they're in their 80s and 90s, and they didn't like that answer. But I want to tell you something, even those that stand by you, they, we're all going home. But one thing no matter what happens or doesn't happen, the Lord will stand by you. You will never be alone. When someone is persecuting you, you'll never be alone. When someone has betrayed you, you'll never be alone. The only way it can destroy you is if you cave into the bitterness and the resentment and the pain of your hurt. I'm not saying the hurt's not real, but you can't cave into it. You've got to understand everything Paul said was right. Nobody was with me. I looked around, they were all gone, but the Lord stood by me. The Lord stood by me. I wondered about that passage of scripture that says, you gladly endured the confiscation of all that you owned. That's a very little known passage in the New Testament because nobody wants to preach on that one. You gladly endured the confiscation of everything that you owned. Why? Because the Lord was with you. They couldn't take the Lord away. Loved ones, I, I, I know what you want me to do. It's the same thing I want. You want me to do a part three where I give you four guaranteed programs to enter to get everybody that's an idiot in your life to line up. But there are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. There are no guarantees that that wayward child is coming back, although we ought to believe God for it. There are no guarantees that that best friend will see the error of their way and say, I'm sorry. There, there, there are times that that wife or that husband that's left you and hurt you and is guilty of such profound sin, they may not come home. But I can guarantee you this, the Lord will always stand by you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of knowing you Help us, please. The unforgiveness that has made our life so ugly, we don't want it. We, we, we've tolerated it, but we don't want it. We want to let go. The pain of not being treated right, Lord, it's devastating, 
but we want to let go of it. And there are things we can do. There are books we can read. But Lord, we start with this final point. It was Paul's observation when he reviewed all the disappointments of his life. The Lord stood with me. Thank you, Lord, that you've never left me alone. Thank you, Lord, that you've never put me out on my own. Thank you that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. If you're here today, either in Brown Chapel or here in the sanctuary, or if you're listening online, for some of you, the first step is to come to Jesus. You you've never really made him Lord of your life. That's always step one. And whether you're here in person or online, we'd love to pray with you. Ministry teams will be moving into position. In fact, teams, you can go ahead and come now. And if you're listening live stream, you can make a call. There's a phone number that'll be on your screen in just a moment if it's not already there. And somebody will be waiting to answer the call. If, if you don't get an answer, it means they're tied up with others, but if you'll leave a message, we'll call you back. Others are here and you just say, Pastor, I'm just struggling. I'm just, I'm just struggling. You don't know how I've been hurt. You don't know the injustice that I've seen from society. You don't know the, the pain that people have caused me. I may not, loved ones. Some of you I do know. Some of you I may have no idea. But I know this. I know the Lord will stand with you. I know the Lord will help you. Others, you may say, I'm sick and I need healing or I've got another need. We're here to pray for that as well. But I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And this is the time you either make a call uh, for prayer. You don't have to just call to give your life to Jesus. You can call for prayer for anything or you come forward. You know, you know what? Let me say one more thing. We have a brand new group of middle schoolers that have been graduated out of uh, Children's Church. And I am so thrilled with new faces I'm seeing in our services. Loved ones, we want you to know that the, the, the God of heaven understands your struggles in life. He understands those things. I tell you what, middle school is a tough place. High school is a tough place, but I want to tell you, there is a God who understands, and we'd love to pray with you. If you want prayer, please come. Thank you for watching online. We love you. Uh, if you want prayer, please come now. If not, uh, as you leave fellowship with one another, have a great, great Sunday afternoon. We love you. God bless you.